our living hope. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter number 7. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it, if we could get all of our ducks in a row. You thought about that? Like if I could just get it all together, if we could perfectly settle into God's rhythm and dial into the fact that God's timing is perfect, if we could always be fully aware of who He is and where He's moving and how He acts, if we could really submit to Christ's authority in all things, all the time, what would life be like? What would life be like to never doubt God? To never doubt His timing? To never take our eyes off of Christ? To to never struggle to understand Him? To never hesitate to obey Him? I'll tell you what it would be like. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. It's, it, it already kind of is amazing, and we're living in such grace because we miss so much of all of those things all the time. Or I do. Uh, confession time. I miss God's timing. I'm, I'm, by the looks of your faces, I'm alone in that, okay? I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, sometimes I don't understand what he's saying, and I struggle to obey him. Just me. Okay, i got a witness on that one. And um, sometimes I take my eyes off of Christ. No? Just me? Okay, you prayed for me this morning. You may remember as we've been journeying through the Gospel of John, this shift happened in chapter 5. Everybody wanted to hang out with Jesus and see stuff, and and everybody seemed to be interested in it. And then a group started distinguishing themselves and pulling off to the side and setting out to kill and to destroy him. It was a second Passover, and Jesus has begun teaching consistent with how he's always moved, but he stirred up so much enmity that there's a contract out for him, so to speak. So here we are in the bread of life discourse that just finished. Many of his disciples withdrew and did not walk with him anymore. The crowd was not interested in a savior who wanted to be spiritual. They wanted a God or a ruler who would give them stuff. But the drama continues in chapter seven with the flavor of that rejection. Remember Jesus Successful church planting 101 started chapter 6 with 5,000 men plus children and, and women and finishes with 12. So I felt that way with my preaching at times. That'll settle in in a bit. In the first section that we see in this text, I don't know if you caught this. I'm going to ask you to have your Bibles open and, and a pen and notepad ready. There's some notes here that I think will help us navigate. I was struggling with chapter 7 on dividing it up appropriately because it's one, here's a fun word, pericope. Who says that? Preachers and theological nerds, right? But it's kind of one scene that happens here and, and the camera begins to shift and it picks up with Jesus saying things, but it's, um, it's interesting to divide. So these are thoughts that will be connected over the next couple of weeks, but as we look at this first section here. I don't know if you caught it, but the ones kind of harassing him here in the beginning of seven were his brothers. Did you catch that when that was read? And so there's this big celebration happening. 
And there's controversy from his own family. There's a celebration being done at Jerusalem. And Jesus has a plan. And Jesus has a timeline. And his family has a different plan. And they have a different timeline altogether. Um, look with me at verses 3 and 4 in your Bibles, please. I'll put some notes up. There'll be some scripture on the screen today. But um, we'll reference quite a bit of text that won't be on the screen. So I'll love hearing those pages flip. Verses 3 and 4. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. And uh, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now it comes across... As like spiritual and interested in his growth and his ministry. Oh, we've got this plan for your ministry, Jesus. Um, God has a plan for your life and so do we. And um, these family members, though, are unbelievers. That gets revealed to us in just a few moments. It's a fake concern that they have. And Jesus knows their motive. By the way, these same family members probably would have been around when Jesus said at 12 years old, I must be about my father's business. So they knew what was up. On the heels of knowing that G Jews wanted to kill him and that most of his followers bolted and now his own flesh and blood doesn't believe in him, Jesus doesn't break down. He speaks up and he does it clearly. First note I'd have you write down is this. Jesus knows the right time. He knows exactly what time it is and he knows when he's going to move and what he's going to do. And some of you are already there in application in your own mind, thinking about your own life. Hang with me in the text for a moment. I'll encourage you with some application in just a few. Jesus responds with clarity. He looks at his family, says it's not time for that yet. He knows exactly what's up. He counters their instructions with this. He says, why don't you go ahead? This is your time to do your thing. Now, now think about it. They're not following him as Lord. And what's he saying? He's saying, no, no, you're in charge of your life. You're the Lord of your life. So you got go do what you want to do. You're also no threat to the enemy's kingdom. I don't know if you picked that up in the subtext. He said, nobody hates you. They hate me. I'm standing for truth and right. You're living your own life. You're doing you. So you go do you over there. And I'll show up when it's time for me to show up. John 7, 9. Look at what he says. After this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So it wasn't that he was just saying some things. He did what he said he was going to do. I want to encourage us this morning. Jesus always does what he says he's going to do. Always. Jesus knew exactly who he was and where he was supposed to be. And he wasn't going to let anybody else hijack his schedule. I want you to look at the way his unbelieving family treated him. They were not yet walking with Jesus, and yet they felt like they had a plan for his life. Don't be surprised, brother or sister in Christ, when non-Christians, even some militant God-haters, want God to do certain things in certain ways to satisfy their way of thinking. It's a logical fallacy they present to you. They want a God of their own making, but won't submit to the God who loves them and made them and gave himself for them. They want a Jesus they can control instead of a Lord to submit to. I want to encourage you this morning, dear Christian friend, right from the text. That's the way unbelievers act. Getting all bent out of shape over God's timing.
Are, are you aware that when we get all bent out of shape over God's timing, it, it doesn't really let us wear the t-shirt that says we trust Him. We're acting like unbelievers. We're saying, Jesus, I love you, but you need to do this in this way and at 3.07 p.m. if you don't mind. That, that doesn't convey we trust Him. When we demand certain things of God and have a plan for His will, we are giving ourselves a promotion that we don't deserve. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus completely. No one loves you like he loves you. Nobody knows you like he knows you. And he knows everything else too and sees all the pieces working together. God is working. He has a better way than you can see. He is never, ever late. He is always on time. Even if the thing that you're hoping for dies and has been dead for three days, Lazarus will tell you he's always on time. He's always on time. Just a side note here, he didn't disclose why he was waiting. He just said, I'm going to wait. I do wish sometimes God would send a follow-up text message to me to let me know why the delay. But he's not obligated to do that. Jesus knows the right time. Jesus also knows, second thing, he knows exactly who he is. Now that's not a very theologically robust point, but I'm telling you, in this age of identity crisis pandemic, that we're experiencing in Western culture. I think it's worth noting that the fearful, opinionated people that think they know who Jesus is, he's very secure in his identity. He knows exactly who he is. Look at me at verses 10 through 13 in the text. But after the brothers had gone up to the feast, he went up, he, goes, he didn't go publicly, he goes in private. I love that. He's like, I'm going to go when I want to go and I'm going the way I want to go. You got to love it. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet because of the fear of the Jews, nobody spoke openly. His unbelieving family's going up to the feast. There's a group of Jews looking for him. They say, where is he? And they say it with such fear and in such intimidation that the people started meetups and little conversations back in the corner of the sanctuary. They'd meet over here to this side and that side of the gathering and and whisper to one another and say things because they were afraid uh, of the intimidating Jewish leaders. Much muttering under people's breath. Uh, some people love giving their opinion. Uh, shocker, right? <laughs> solicited or, brace yourself, unsolicited. You don't believe it? Get engaged. Right? And everybody will suddenly tell you about how your married life needs to be. You didn't ask. And then get married and everybody will suddenly begin to speak into your life about all the children that you need to have for their pleasure. And then have kids and they want you to have grandkids. I mean, just, I don't know, buy me a funeral plot. Let's move on. They just seem to want to move you on through life and not let you stop and have a moment. Everybody has an opinion. The crowd has an opinion. And I want to assure you of something. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. I'm going to nuance that in just a moment with a recent study that came out in the last couple of years. But solicited or unsolicited, people have opinions, and they don't really know what they're talking about. Shocker, right? That doesn't just stop anybody from speaking today either. The crowd didn't know much more. Some said he's a good man. Some said he's leading people astray. We see these as polar opposites. When you read the text, if you're not careful, you'll see that as like, oh, he's a good man. Well, but Jesus said nobody can call anything good except the Father. So 
Maybe they're saying the right thing. And another say, well, he's leading people astray. Let me tell you something. There are myriad religions that are not in line with this Bible that acknowledge that Jesus was a good man. He's more than a good man. If he's just a good man, he's leading people astray. He's the Son of God incarnate. He is the Word robed in flesh. He is God's final statement on the matter of the salvation for humanity. Thank God Jesus knows exactly who he is and is not swayed by man's opinion. Jesus says of himself, I am the bread of life. He said that in John 6. He said, I am the door. He said that in John 10. He said, I am the good shepherd in John 10. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. There are two more I am's that Jesus declared that weren't metaphors in the book of John. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Boy, that really infuriated. That comes up in chapter 8 in just a couple of weeks. In John chapter number 18, when they came to take him by force, he asked, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when he says this, they were pushed back with the power of his declaration. He's God. Jesus knows exactly who he is. You and I are living right now amidst a growing tide of people who don't know anything about Jesus. And yet they have an opinion. Here it is. They don't really care that they don't know anything about Jesus. Kyle Bashirs wrote a very insightful book recently entitled Apatheism. I'll say it again. Apatheism. It's a clever play on words, but it's their religion. Their God's name is I don't care. Not too long ago, we, we were dealing with people who were spiritual, but weren't necessarily religious. You dial the clock back even before that, and people were religious, but didn't have a relationship with God. Now people don't care about any of it. It's as if they can split that breaker off and not have to deal with any of it. But Jesus says to all people, what shall it profit a man, if he gains the whole world and forfeits its own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? They may not care now, I assure you, standing before the judge, they will. And watching us live our lives in front of them, they should. And it ought to invite the question. Jesus knows what time it is. Right here in our text we see that. He knows exactly who he is and he's not threatened by others' opinion to him. And I'm going to speak a little more to that under this one. And Jesus, watch this, teaches with authority. He teaches with authority. Even amidst false accusations, in just a moment, in verse 20, we didn't read the second half of our text this morning. We're going all the way to 24. But in verse 20, if you'll um, look down there in your text, he says, Who seeks to, um, Why do you seek to kill me at the end of verse 19? And the crowd answers, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? The same crowd that just said, Oh, he's a good man. When he begins teaching with authority, they begin to push back. Jesus teaches with authority because he's God. He and the Father are completely in sync. The Bible says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus is God. The first thing I want you to notice in Jesus teaching with authority and how he teaches with such authority is that he points to God's word. 
He points to God's word. Jesus said in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. He has authority because he's God and he teaches with authority because he and the father are in sync and he's teaching with the word of God. Remember, John 1 told us he was the word with flesh on. He's the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Jesus teaches with authority and he uses the word of God. Be careful the TikToks and the YouTubes and all the experts that you've got out there trying to inform you and give you some new perspective on this new historical thing about the Bible. God help you if you watch a PBS special on the Bible. Who knows what they're smoking? Go to the Word of God and see what it says of itself. Go to established authority on God's Word. We've not just come up with this stuff. We've got 2,000 years of running this way. God's Word is powerful. It's absolute. It's more to be desired than gold, even much more than fine gold, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. God's Word, it it warns God's servant. It, It helps keep us and points us to great reward. Jesus taught with the word of God and people pushed back. We'll see a controversy erupt in just a few moments. The second thing, how Jesus taught with authority, he fulfills God's will. He fulfills God's will. If you look at verse 17, it's right there. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, if you'll allow me just a few moments, I'm doing great on time this morning. I hope you are. If you allow me just a few moments, I, I want to speak to you about the will of God. It, it's a bit of a, a subtext. I'm not chasing a rabbit here. It's not a tangent. It's right there in the text. If anyone, it says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The Bible tells us that God leads the humble to what is right and teaches the humble his way. I, I, let, let me give you a few things about God's will. I, because I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I, I believe this is the will of God for me to do this. Now, I believe it's God's will for me to do that. And I mean, what do you say? What do you say to somebody who says, God told me? Well, I, have a little, I do a little bit of that. I get a little nervous when people say that. But when people say it's God's will, and then it's something that's not really addressed in Scripture. It's something quite nuanced in their life. What do you do? Well, I do believe that the Word of God gives us some rails to run on. If it's God's will, it won't be out of line with what Scripture says God's will accomplishes in the life of the believer. I can't tell you which parking spot to take, but I can tell you what the Bible says about some parameters for God's will. The first thing I'd have you note, and these aren't in necessarily order of importance, they're just some observations. You could survey probably some other Bible teachers in the room and find this many more, but let me just give you a few. It will result in selflessness. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7, I'm trying to give you context, I'll just give you a verse. The the Bible says that people who were in the will of God, it says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. He's describing people who are right in the center of God's will and what did they do? They were surrendered to the Lord. Don't tell me you're sensing the will of God because you've got peace about something, but you live like the devil. That's, that's like old school preaching there. I know, I'll, I'll clean it up a little bit. Don't tell me that you've got an emotional feeling when your life is out of sync with sanctified living. How about that? Same thing, right? Just different flavors. 
It, it's not about feeling. Norm did a great job of bringing that out in the text on just because you feel a sense of inner peace doesn't mean you're in the center of God's will. And 2 Corinthians 8, he says, they, they gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave themselves to us. It's selflessness. It's a denying of self. If you're in the will of God, I think you'll do everything worshipfully. You'll be able to do the thing that you think God's leading you to do as unto the Lord. Like you can bring that to the altar, Old Testament imagery here, but you can bring that to the altar and say, Lord, here's my gift to you, this thing that I'm about to do because it's an act of worship. Not the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants, sorry about that, of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Do everything as unto the Lord. That's the will of God. If it's the will of God, it will cause you to mature and be confident in your faith. In Colossians 4, the Bible records, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. If this thing is the will of God, it will result in your spiritual maturity. It will push you down the path closer to God, not further away from Him. Here's one that we really love as Americans and modern day Christians. Brace yourself. It will result in sanctified living. I'm going to be a holiness preacher here for about 45 seconds if you'll let me. The Bible says, not Chad says, not this denomination says, or that denomination says, or the tradition of man says. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It lists a myriad of other things, and then it concludes with this thought, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. If you're following the will of God, you will not be immoral. If you're following the will of God, you will be in control of your own body. If you're following the will of God, you will live in holiness and honor. If you're following the will of God, you will not be driven by the passion of lust like those who don't know God. If you're following the will of God, you will be pursuing purity because he's pure. And without holiness, it's hard for men to see the God we claim to know. That's our holiness, by the way, on display to a lost and dying world. Well, that went over like a pregnant pole vaulter. I figured it would. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to something happy-go-lucky. Here we go. I think all these work together, though. It's not a pick and choose. I'll take this one or that one. This is what the Bible says. If you're going after God's will, it will cause you to constantly rejoice, constantly pray, and be thankful. Where'd you get that from, preacher? Oh, from God's Word. Have you picked up on a theme here? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, watch this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pastor, what's God's will for my life? That you'd be selfless, that you do all things as unto the Lord, that you would grow in your faith, that you'd be set apart and live a life that pursues purity, that you would be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Oh, I was just asking about taking this job. I get it. But if taking that job compromises any of these things, it's not the will of God. If taking this action is to the detriment of that for the body of Christ, it is not the will of God. 
Knowing God's will starts with knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and being more and more conformed to the image of his son. The next thing I would have you to note as Jesus teaches with authority is that he reveals God's glory. There's two more under his teaching with authority. He reveals God's glory. The Bible says in verse 18, John chapter number 7, the one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The glory of God has been defined as the splendor and brilliant beauty that shines off all of the attributes of God, and it's most clearly seen in the crucified and resurrected Christ. The Bible says that God displays the radiance, Jesus does, the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews chapter number 1 tells us that. Colossians 1 says of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him He reconciles to Himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus Christ shows us the glory of God just because of who He is. He doesn't have to do anything to earn that. He just is. We glorify God when we reveal Christ through our words, through our actions, and even in our thought life. That's how you and I can glorify God. Lastly, under Jesus' teaching with God's authority, and I'll finish this up. Jesus is God's way. Now in verses 19 through 24, hang with me for just a few more moments here. Verses 19 through 24 in chapter 7, here's what goes down. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Boom, that's a pretty hard turn there. Why do you seek to kill me? That's when the crowd says, what are you talking about? You've got a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Summary of that. Jesus says, you guys keep adding stuff to the Bible, but you're only adding stuff that works for you. So if I try to do it your way, but you don't like what I'm doing, you say I'm a demon. So the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do anything, but so you can keep the law of God, you can do this thing. Well, here I am making people whole, but you don't want me to do that on the Sabbath. He shows the contradiction of their belief system by what they've added to the Word of God. Listen, their sense of timing is warped, even with it, as it relates to the Sabbath, because of man-made rules and regulations. For time's sake, let me hasten a few application points here. Our sense of timing can be warped too when we create rules for how God is supposed to act that don't line up with Scripture. Their sense of truth is warped because they've placed doctrines of man on the same level with doctrines of God. Our sense of truth can be warped too when we conflate politics with Scripture. And our own opinions as though they are the oracles of God. Our folk theology is not biblical theology. 
Their sense of judgment is warped because they cannot see what God sees. Our sense of judgment can be warped too when we don't take in the whole counsel of God. So here's a first glimpse at John chapter number 7. It's a riveting, wonderful, power-packed chapter. But remember, John's gospel was written that we might understand who Jesus really is and believe on him. What's John shown us here? He's shown us that Jesus knows the right time to take action, even when people around him and close to him get it wrong. He, he shows that Jesus knows who he is, even when people try to redefine who he is. It's shown that Jesus has all authority. He points to God's word, he fulfills God's will, he reveals God's glory, and he leads God's way. My question to you this morning, brother or sister in Christ or guest who does not identify as a Christian, my question to you is this. Do you trust him? Since Jesus has perfect timing, you can trust that he's working even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't understand it. Trust his timing. Your situation has not caught God off guard. Since Jesus has perfect knowledge, you can trust him with every detail of your life. You may not understand his plan for your life. It may not be what you think is best right now in this moment, but you don't know what he knows. You can't see what he sees because if you could, you'd pick exactly what he's picked for you. Since Jesus has perfect authority, I'm going to tell you something. His word is worth knowing. It's truth in a world full of lies. His will is worth following. It's the North Star that will not lead you wrong. His glory is worth pursuing. It's what you were made to reveal to the world. And His way is worth embracing. It's better than the best this world has to offer. His way is infinitely better than the best of the best thing you can even come up with in your mind. In fact, the scripture says the greatest, most elaborate thing you can even imagine heaven to be like is not half as good as it actually is. And some of you are pretty creative. This past week, I had the privilege of serving alongside a group of young men known as The Color, a Christian band in Canada. If you're struggling with some of these truths this morning in light of what you're experiencing, because it's one thing to say amen on a Sunday morning when the text is right. It's another thing to step out on Monday and still have that amen in your pocket. But if you're struggling because nothing seems to line up and play out with God's sense of timing and his sense of purpose and his sense of authority in your life, can I just encourage you with the lyrics of these songs that I, I took, I scribbled down as fast as I could. It's a song called A Better Way. Uh, in one of the bridges they say, there's a million details that only you see. I see a fraction of the grand scheme, but you have heaven's point of view, and here's the chorus. So maybe that mountain saved my heart from the valley. Maybe that desert taught me to pray for rain. Maybe that water never parted for a reason. You want to lead me a better way. Most of us, when we see an obstacle in front of us, we expect God to move it. When we're in a desert place, we expect him to move us out immediately. When we can't understand what's going on, we expect an explanation. But God may be leading you a better way. It's not a way you would choose.
Trust him. He knows what time it is. Trust him. He knows exactly who he is and who he created you to be in this moment. Trust him. He alone has all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm going to ask Julia to come now and prepare us for transition as we pray together. I wonder if you take a moment and not do, maybe like you're tempted to do. Sometimes after a sermon is preached at Grace Covenant, there's a nice little piece played and we take a moment of quiet and we just kind of sit and think, okay, they'll, they'll sing in a minute and a few minutes after that we get to have lemonade and cookies. This is a transition piece. I, I'm asking you this morning to, to be fully aware that God's timing is perfect. To be fully aware that He knows exactly who you are and who He is in your life. And to be fully aware that He has all authority and He can handle it. Let's take a moment in silence and pray. Do you trust Him this morning? Lord, I'm so thankful that you called us together as the body to worship you in spirit and truth, to lift high the name of Jesus, to pray together, to struggle together, to learn together, to lean in together to your word. And Father, I'm keenly aware of the reality that I don't know everything that's going on in this room. I know a few things. I can think of one person's situation and, and it take up my whole prayer calendar this whole week. And, and that's not just because of shepherding the flock, Lord. That's because it's that big of a deal in their lives. And this room is full of people with the same kind of big deal. Some are known, some are not. And yet, Lord, you are trustworthy. You know exactly what's up with each and every one of us. Forgive us when we act like unbelievers when it comes to your timetable. Forgive us when it looks like we've forgotten who you are. Forgive us, Lord, when we seek some other or appeal to some other authority other than yours to set our course on a way that would glorify you. Encourage us today that your timing is perfect. Your knowledge is perfect, and your authority is perfect. Lord, we trust you. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.